Hopefully you guys brought your knives and forks this morning because we've got a lot of chewing to do, okay? So if you would, please turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 7. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 53 this morning, and you can find it on page 914, 915, 916 in the Pew Bibles. Now here at Redeemer, we love God's Word. We want to know God's Word. We want to live according to all that it teaches us in light of Jesus Christ. And that desire, that ambition affects everything we do. From how we focus our time and energy when we gather here as a worship uh, service, as this gathering of those who are proclaiming Christ's name, to the way we do preaching, to like. the way we do foundations courses and family discipleship gatherings and community groups and our children's ministry and Lord willing and hopefully in every single individual home that through this church we are raising up those who are faithful workers of the word who have no need to be ashamed because they are rightly handling the word of truth. We want to take all of these glorious things that we have seen and heard in the presence of many witnesses and entrust those to those who are faithful, who will then be able to teach others also from one generation to another, to another, to another, each one of them loving and knowing and living for this whole counsel of God. Because that is our ambition, to know love, and proclaim the whole counsel of God. Now that is easier said than done, especially today when we find ourselves surrounded by those who profess to love Jesus, but maybe don't. And out of either ignorance or maybe even idolatry, do not proclaim the whole counsel of God happens among individuals who profess faith in Christ, but also even among whole churches. There are those who would say, out of ignorance, they live for this whole council, but in reality, they do not. Or in idolatry, they reject and dismiss and disregard certain aspects of this biblical truth and redefine it into something that is more culturally or personally palatable to them, all the while saying that they know and love God. And so out of either ignorance or idolatry, what happens is there's this perversion of truth. And I hope you understand this is a far bigger issue than than saying, okay, on one hand over here, we've got those who profess Christ, and we'll call them evangelicals, and over here, we've got those who do not. The issue is how can we call ourselves Christian? How can we bear witness to his name if we do not speak for him but for ourselves? How can we say that we know and love and worship God? How can we say that we are believing as Christ believed when we are not believing and speaking as Christ did? But we have our own thoughts our own agendas, our own belief systems as to what it means to be a Christian. 
How can we say that we know and love and live for this whole counsel of God if we do not believe and speak as Christ did? If we do not faithfully bear witness to his name with our thoughts and our words and our beliefs and our lives. This morning, we come to Stephen's sermon before this council in Jerusalem. Stephen was proclaiming the word in power and in deed, and he was brought, he was seized and brought before this council. And so what you have here is that you've got Stephen standing before this council, bearing witness for Christ on one side, and on the other, you've got this council who's standing in the judgment seat against him. But here's the thing. Both of them would say that they know, love, and live for the whole counsel of God. But only one of them actually is. Both of them would say that they are God's chosen people, that they are people of the word, that they are people who worship God in spirit and in truth, but only one of them actually is. The others either out of ignorance or idolatry, have rejected, resisted, and distorted the whole counsel of God. This Sanhedrin, this Senate, this council, they, they thought they knew God's word, but they resisted the Holy Spirit. They thought that they upheld the law when in truth they did not keep it. They were confident that they were worshiping God faithfully because they had the temple But in reality, they were betraying and denying and murdering the one, the true temple, that this shell of a building pointed to. And so, friends, it's really important that as we come here, we do not assume that we are okay simply because we profess some faith in some thing. What is imperative for us is that we know love, believe, and live according to the whole counsel of God. And to do that, we must believe and speak as Christ did. And so what we're going to hear this morning from Stephen's sermon in this long passage, Acts chapter 7, verses 1 through 53, is that the Old Testament prepares the way for stiff-necked people to find salvation in Christ. And we're just going to unpack that statement. The Old Testament prepares the way for stiff-necked people to find salvation in Christ. Now, this is Stephen's summation of the whole counsel of God. Quite literally. This is the longest sermon that is recorded in the book of Acts And it's one of the longest chapters in the entire New Testament. So we've got a lot of work cut out for us this morning. And so as I read through this, I want you to pay careful attention, right? Don't just kind of like listen to the sultry sound of my voice and begin to nod off a little bit, but just to be active in in listening. And so here's what I want you to do. I, I want you to listen carefully for how this passage describes God. Who is he? What is he like? What is he up to? What is he doing? Where is he when he speaks to his people? Right? And also, listen for the way that Stephen describes the people in this sermon. 
Not just those chosen servants who were appointed to communicate God's word, but also listening for how people respond to them. That'll help you to be more attentive, and it'll help us as we move along, and we try to break down this text together, okay? So with that, let's go ahead and read Acts chapter 7, verses 1 through 53. It says, And the high priest said, Are these things so? And Stephen said, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran and said to him, go out from your land and from your kindred and go to the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land into which you are now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect, that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others who would enslave them and afflict them 400 years. But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God, and after that they shall come out and worship me in this place. And he gave them the covenant of circumcision, And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the twelve patriarchs. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him out of all of his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Now there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan, and great affliction, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers on their first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob, his father, and all his kindred, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down to Egypt, and he died. He and our fathers... And they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham brought, uh, bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor in Shechem. But at, as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would, could, would not be kept alive. At this time, Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight. And he was brought up for three months in his father's house. And when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds." When he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wrong, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this retort, 
Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. And when forty years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in the flame of fire in a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight, and as he drew near to look, there came the voice of the Lord. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their groanings, I have come, and I have come down to deliver them. And now come, and I will send you to Egypt. This Moses whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of an angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give to us. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside. And in their hearts they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the work of their hands. But God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven. As it was written in the book of the prophets, did you bring to me slain beasts and sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your God, Rephan, the images that you made to worship, and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers in turn brought it in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. And so it was until the days of David, who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for God, the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. As the prophet says, Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord, or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered, you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. And the main idea of Stephen's sermon here is that the Old Testament prepares the way for stiff-necked people to find salvation in Christ. 
And so what I want us to do is I just want to unpack that statement into three different sections. We're going to spend most of our time, though, in that first, because that's where we have the most work to do. And so first of all, the Old Testament prepares the way. Now, have you ever met someone, or, or maybe, maybe if you're honest with yourself, you too would find yourself guilty of minimizing the Old Testament? Now, maybe you don't re- disregard it entirely, but let's face it, you've always had those good intentions to read through the Bible every year, and, and they've died somewhere in Leviticus or Chronicles, right? Or, or maybe, maybe you've thought to yourself, you know, it's hard for me to see the God of grace and mercy that I've come to understand in the New Testament into the Old Testament. Or, or maybe you look upon it and you're just like, you know what? These are just a bunch of dead names. There's a bunch of non-existent places, some, some ancient, irrelevant history and weird cultic practices. Or, or maybe you come to this, the Old Testament and you think to yourself, you know, why, why does it really matter this side of Christ? I mean, it's like, why would you go back and want to watch the first half of the game if you know what happens in the second well, if you happen to be in our survey of the Old Testament class, I told them, and I'll tell you, there are two main reasons why we study the Old Testament. The first is that the Old Testament reveals the character and purposes and nature and promises of God in ways that the New Testament does not. You see, the New Testament was written over the course of a generation, within a matter of 50 years or so. But the Old Testament was told over thousands and thousands and thousands of years. And so with that, there comes this richness, this, this depth that you cannot read and cannot identify in the New Testament. With the New Testament, it's like having this crystal clear snapshot, this, this picture that really paints a great picture of, of what everything's about. You can see it really clearly. But the Old Testament is like a dirty, gritty, hour-long, maybe silent film where it just leads up to the whole thing. It, it, it tells the story in greater detail, even though it's not as clear as the other. You see, it's one thing for us to read about God's patience, say in, in 2 Peter chapter 3, that the Lord is not slow in keeping His promises, but is patient with you. But yet it's another thing to read the story that takes place over the course of thousands of years of how God is patient with his people in the desert wanderings as they take the land, as they rebel against him during the time of the judges or the monarchy or into the exile or even beyond. You see, it's a very different lens, a much more detailed lens through which we can see who God is. And this is right in line with what Stephen is preaching. And a second reason why we study the Old Testament <clears throat> is because it tells us about Jesus. The events, the people, the institutions and themes that we read about in the Old, in the Old Testament, they all point to Jesus in, in some way or another. <clears throat> and then you add to that, by one account, the New Testament references 295 different Old Testament passages. It quotes them over 1,600 times. There are 600 allusions um, of the Old Testament in the New, and that's not counting all of the Old Testament echoes and allusions that all sort of point to and lead us and direct us to understand who Jesus is. 
And so quite honestly, you can't truly understand the New Testament without the Old Testament. Actually, the authors of the New Testament expect you to have a working knowledge of the Old Testament in order to faithfully understand and interpret it. And that's right in line with what we see Paul doing, for example. As we're going to continue through the book of Acts, we're going to see that Paul's mission agenda is when he comes to a new place, what does he first do? He first goes to the synagogues and he reasons with them from the Old Testament as to how Jesus is the Christ. And only when they turn aside from that does he then go to the Gentiles. And so we see that pattern throughout the New Testament as well. You cannot understand the New Testament apart from the Old. But even more than an aid for us in knowing Jesus better, Jesus himself says that the Old Testament teaches about him. That it's about him. And and quite honestly, I, I just encourage you this afternoon to go home and to read Luke chapter 24. The whole thing. But there are two points in there in particular, around verse 27 and around verse 44, where Jesus opens the eyes of his disciples to see how the law and prophets are fulfilled in him. And Jesus goes on to so far as to say that he came to fulfill all the law and prophets. And so this is important for us to consider. The Bible in its entirety is a book about Jesus. To abandon the Old Testament is to abandon God's revelation of himself, to abandon a true understanding of the New Testament, and to abandon a full knowledge of Christ. And this is basically what Stephen is arguing. If I could summarize the Old Testament in just a phrase, the Old Testament is about promises made. In the Old Testament, as we read about it, we see our need for God to make and to keep promises. We see how no matter what we try to do, no matter what efforts we can make to try to save ourselves, we only earn the just and holy wrath of God. And in it, we also see that God is faithful in keeping his promises to his people in making it a way for them to be saved and to do something that they could never achieve for themselves. So the Old Testament is about promises made. The New Testament is how those promises are kept, particularly in Jesus Christ. And that is what Stephen was arguing for. That is why he finds himself on trial. The message of Jesus Christ as the fulfillment of the Old Testament is spreading like a wildfire. And thousands and thousands of people are now leaving Judaism to follow this way. And it's gotten so bad that chapter 6 verse 7 says that now even many of the priests themselves have become obedient to the faith. And so this council is looking upon Jesus as he really is, as as just an, an, an upheaval to their very way of life. And they've got to do something. They've got to stop this wildfire before it continues any further. And so they seize Stephen, and they bring him before the council, and they accuse him of speaking sacrilegiously. Chapter 6, verse 11 says that then they secretly instigated men who said, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. 
And then a couple of verses later, there in verse 13, and they set up false witnesses who said, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place, that's the temple, and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And so friends, Stephen is on trial because people are twisting his message. They were instigators and false teachers, false witnesses. He, accused, he was accused of speaking against Moses and God, against this holy place, the temple, and the law. And their reasoning is because they heard him say that Jesus would destroy the temple and would change the customs of Moses. So all of this boils down to this one question. How should we understand the Old Testament? Right? Now, they weren't listening to Stephen all that well. But Stephen was teaching what Christ taught. What Christ taught about the temple, what Christ taught about Moses, what Christ taught about God, what Christ taught about the Old Testament Scriptures. Jesus did say in Matthew 24, Mark 13, and Luke 21 that the temple would be destroyed. But this was due to the fact that they have taken this house of prayer and they've turned it into a den of robbers. Or in John chapter 2, Jesus said, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And then the Jews said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you will raise it up in three days. But then John lets us in on what Jesus means. That Jesus was referring to the temple of his body. That when he was speaking of the destruction of the temple, Jesus was speaking about his own death because he was the true temple. And when he died, the temple curtain that separated the most holy place, the very mercy seat of God from the people was torn in two from top to bottom so that now through his sacrifice, sinful men can dwell with a holy God. Also, Jesus did change the customs that Moses delivered, but not by disregarding them and throwing them out and saying those are irrelevant. He did so by fulfilling them. You see, ultimately, those customs pointed us to him so that we could see who he is. Matthew chapter 5, Jesus said, Do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. And so he didn't come to change the law. He came to accomplish the law. He came to do what you and I could never, ever do on our own, to fulfill God's law completely. And so the question is, who here is holding to the whole counsel of God? Who is believing it? Who is following it? Who is obeying it? Who's faithfully teaching the word of God? Is it, is it this council who's focusing on the temple and the customs of Moses or those like Stephen who are preaching Christ as the fulfillment of these things? Those who faithfully teach what Jesus taught of himself. The issue is how do we rightly understand and rightly apply the word of God? These religious leaders, are they doing it or is it Stephen? And so the high priest asked Stephen about these accusations in verse 1. And he says, are these things so? Are you speaking against Moses and God? Are you speaking against the holy place and the law? 
And so Stephen opens up his mouth and he pours forth a biblical theology of God's covenant presence with his people and of Israel's continual rebellion against God. These are the two issues that Stephen puts forward for us to consider. God's covenant presence with his sinful people and Israel's continual rebellion against God. If you miss that, this is going to seem really confusing. You're just like, Stephen's just running down one rabbit trail after another. It's what a lot of liberal biblical scholars want to say about this, that Stephen is just kind of like, trying to pander and get in good with him. See, look at all the, the biblical history I know. That's not what he's doing. He's addressing those two issues from Scripture so that we might know and understand who God really is and what he's really about. And so the question becomes, how do we understand God's presence in his dwelling place? How does God use his word, his revelation for the guidance of his people? And what does that mean for us to truly worship him? And friends, all of these questions are essential for us to consider today if we are going to truly know and love and follow God. Now, kids, we've learned this in our catechism. Where is God? Don't be afraid. Where's God? Everywhere. God is everywhere, right? Now, these religious leaders on this council would say that they agreed with that. But functionally, practically, in everyday life, they would say, well, yeah, God's everywhere, but God's in the temple. That's where he is. That's the holy place where, where God is. And so beginning with their father, Abraham, he starts with that common point there in verse 2, brothers and fathers, hear me. I'm not blaspheming. I'm one of you. I too believe that the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham way back when he was just another pagan in Mesopotamia, even before he lived in Haran. And God said to him, go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. And so Abraham went from Har Har there to Haran, from Haran into this land that you are now living in, this land surrounding Jerusalem. And so the God of glory sought out this unrighteous Abraham while he was still just another idol worshiper in Ur, far, far away from the Temple Mount, and God elected him and his family, and he promised the barren Abraham that he would become a great nation of people. God sought him out. God is the one who set his covenant love upon him and promised him a glorious future if he would obey him. And Abraham did. He believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. But the promise wasn't ultimately about Abraham's offspring or the land. And this is where they're getting it confused. It's not about the offspring or the land because verse 5, Stephen reminds them of what God told Abraham. Right? That yet he gave him no inheritance in it. Not even a foot's length. Not even, not even this much. Right? But yet promised to him, that, to him as a possession and that his offspring after him, though he had no child. But even more than that, and God spoke to this effect that his offspring would be sojourners in a land that belonged to others who would enslave them and afflict them 400 years <clears throat> but I will judge the nation whom they serve, said God. And after that, 
they shall come out and worship me in this place. And he gave them the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the 12 patriarchs. And so Stephen is saying this, look, if it's about the holy place, this holy place, if it's about the land, then why the 400-year delay? Why, why the slavery in Egypt? Because if that's what it's about, if it's about the land, then all that Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and the 12 patriarchs got out of the deal was a painful loss of foreskin. And that's no deal. That's no deal unless the covenant of circumcision was about God's glory the God of glory's promise to be with his people wherever he would lead them. It's no deal unless God was working out this plan to show his glory in redeeming a people from slavery and affliction, in triumphing over their greatest enemies to lead them to a place of worship, not in terms of location, but in hearts. This is no deal Unless God has a plan to bless Abraham's descendants with far, far more than land and through them to bless all of the families of the earth. And so friends, already we see pointers to Christ, both in the storyline of Scripture and in Stephen's sermon. Next in verses 9 through 16, Stephen moves on to Joseph, God's chosen messenger, and deliverer from among the 12 patriarchs. Now they were in the land of promise at this time, this land that God had promised to give to them. And God gives Joseph two different visions about how all of his family would bow down to him. And of course, they loved that, right? No, they hated it, wanted to kill him, sold him into slavery, right? And so off he goes down into slavery, but yet verse nine says that God was with him. God rescued him out of all of his afflictions and gave him favor, that is grace, and gave him wisdom. Grace and wisdom. Two terms that have described Jesus and also, ironically, Stephen. God made Joseph the second in command over the greatest empire of that time period. Consider that for the fact, you know, just for a moment. God did this. It'd be like taking someone from Iran and making them vice president of the United States. That can't even happen politically here, but yet it happened. Joseph's wisdom is what saved Abraham's descendants from this famine. Joseph saved those who rejected him. Again, this points us to Jesus, that despite their rejection of God's message and his chosen servant, Abraham's offspring were able to continue to live on, to eat and drink and live. And they all ended up moving down to Egypt out of the land. So they're not even in the promised land, and yet God is there, faithfully with them, delivering them, sustaining them, providing for them using unexpectedly slavery, imprisonment, famines, and even foreign nations to achieve his glorious purposes. Jake, excuse me, <clears throat> Jacob and the 12 died there in Egypt, 
But in verses 15 and 16, Stephen reminds the council that their bodies were carried back and ironically buried in Shechem, which is in Samaria, the most hated place for Jews. As an act of faith that God would keep his word, that his chosen people would be living in the promised land under his rule and blessing. But before Stephen moves away from Joseph and on to Moses, in verses 17 through 19, he reminds us that while God's promise was being fulfilled, God's promise to Abraham was being fulfilled, the people were increasing in number and multiplying there in Egypt, God also raised up another king who did not know Joseph and who dealt harshly with his people. God, guys, this is really, really important for us to consider. Because had God not done that, the people would have remained in Egypt. They were fat and happy. They had power. They had prestige. They were in the greatest nation and culture of the time. Anything that you could want from this world, they had. Joseph was in the second in command. And and God could have easily worked it out to where the Israelites could have taken command of Egypt, but that's not what happened. They had everything that you could want, just like these religious leaders, but God had a different plan in mind. The Israelites were subjected to slavery. They were forced to expose their infants, all of them leading leading them to a place of crying out to God, recognizing their need for deliverance, not just from the physical slavery in Egypt, but slavery from all of its pleasantries and all of its idols as well. Their temples, their customs, their culture, all of which were opposed to God. And so now that they were crying out to God for deliverance, Willing to follow his direction, God raised up Moses. Verse 20 says that Moses was beautiful in the sight of God, just as his son Jesus. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. He was brought forth or delivered out of the chaos, the river, out of death, adopted by Pharaoh's daughter and raised as a son. And Moses says, in, was in verse 22, instructed in the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. Again, we have wisdom, but this time we have might in word and deed. Both describe Jesus and also Stephen. Again, Stephen is not the one pointing this out for us. Luke is. In verses 23 through 29, Stephen then fast forwards to the second 40-year period of Moses' life when he visits his brothers, the children of Israel, and avenges one who is being oppressed by striking down his enemy. And verse 25 says, he supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. Again, What does it sound like? Moses then tried to reconcile these Israelites to each other, but they rejected him. Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Well, God did. But at this time, Moses, fearing for his life, fled to Midian and started a family. 
But then after another 40 years, verses 34 through 30 through 34 describe how God appeared to Moses this time at Mount Sinai in a burning bush. Now, not even the temple had a burning bush. But here's this burning bush out in the middle of the wilderness in Midian in a mountain somewhere that we don't even know where it is now. And this is holy ground. You gotta take your sandals off when you go there. And yet, Moses heard the voice of the Lord. I am the covenant-keeping God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. And Moses dared not to look, but he was instructed to take off his sandals because he was standing on holy ground. And so wherever God is manifest, whether that be in Mesopotamia or in Egypt or in Samaria or on Mount Sinai out in the wilderness of Midian, it is holy ground. This temple is not the only holy place The holy place is wherever God is with his people. And so God delivered Moses and chose him to be ruler, judge, deliverer, and prophet to his people Israel. In verse 35, this Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and Redeemer, notice the language, by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out performing wonders and signs. Hmm, sounds like Jesus and Stephen again. In Egypt, at the Red Sea, and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up For you, a prophet like me from your brothers. This passage, Deuteronomy chapter 18, was quoted by Peter back in Acts chapter 3 and said, That's Jesus. Jesus is that prophet. Verse 38 this is the one who is in the congregation, and that's the word church, in the wilderness. And with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He's saying this is the one who stood as a mediator between God and man. Moses received living oracles to give to us. Did you you catch that when I read through it earlier? Living oracles. The law was never about customs or rules. These are living oracles. And Jesus himself is the living oracle. And so the true church is those who have received these living oracles from God's appointed ruler, redeemer, and mediator. And you're left with the question, well, what more could they want? But verse 39 Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside, and in their hearts they turned to Egypt. While Moses was up there on the mountain, receiving these living oracles from God, the people were making an idol and worshiping gods made with their own hands. They wanted to go back to Egypt, back to slavery, and not just physical slavery, they wanted to go back to the spiritual slavery as well. And yet, despite their idolatry, 
And the fact that God gave them over to false worship in verses 42 and 43, nevertheless, God was still faithful. The holy and righteous God makes a way to dwell with these sinful men. Verse 44, our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness. The tabernacle, which means dwelling place. This is, this is evidence that this holy God delights to dwell with us as sinful people. Just as he spoke to Moses, directed him to make it according to the pattern that he has seen. Because this is what God has revealed to him. And our fathers in turn brought it in with Joshua when he, they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. And so everywhere they went, God's covenant presence was with them, delivering them, making it possible for them to be his people in his place under his rule and blessing. And so it was until the days of David. Again, Stephen starts speeding up. He's speeding up either because they were getting bored or perhaps a little bit hostile, right? But guys, this should be anything but boring or frustrating to us. Because here we are looking upon how our holy covenant-keeping God is dwelling with his sinful people, fulfilling passage after passage after passage, promise after promise, making it possible for sinners to have true salvation, true hope that goes far, far beyond mere religion, far beyond buildings, beyond customs, beyond rules, and beyond a family heritage. And so at last, Stephen arrives at the temple, though everything he said has built up to it. Verse 46, David, who found favor in the sight of God and asked him to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob, but it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet, the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. But as the prophet Isaiah said in Isaiah 66, verses 1 and 2, Heaven is my throne and the earth, the whole earth, is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord, or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? And so they accused Stephen of speaking blasphemous words against Moses. But who was Moses but God's chosen ruler and redeemer who pointed to a prophet like him whom God would raise up from among their people? They accused Stephen of speaking blasphemous words against God. But who is God but the holy creator and covenant-keeping savior who is not limited by any earthly powers or by location or by even the sinfulness of his own people. This one true and living God who cannot be contained in ornate little man-made houses, who is everywhere present and rules over all. The heavens are his throne. The earth is merely a footstool to him. He doesn't rest or dwell in houses. He is the one who has made all things. They accused Stephen of speaking words against the temple, this holy place. When wherever God is revealed is holy. God dwells with his people, not in buildings. 
And the whole point of the tabernacle in the temple is so that the word would become flesh and dwell, tabernacle among us. And they accuse Stephen of speaking against the law and the customs of Moses. When the law and customs are living oracles, living logion, a living message, a living word from God. You see, throughout the entire history of Israel, throughout the entire history of mankind, God was preparing a way and it was all pointing us to Jesus. Every part. This is not a story that you can tell in five minutes, but one that we will spend a lifetime humbly and earnestly digging deeper and deeper and deeper into. And the more we dig deeply, the further we go, the more we see Jesus. And it's marvelous. And so for thousands and thousands and thousands of years, through countless means, God has prepared a way second for stiff-necked people. As Stephen gives us this biblical theology, this redemptive history of our everywhere present covenant-keeping God who is dealing with his people, you see that, that he divides them into two different categories. There are those chosen ones of God who listen, who obey God's word, and there are those who are stiff-necked and rebel against it. And that's there in the council it's among those who thrust aside Moses. It's there in Joseph's jealous brothers. And it's even there in the story of Abraham. But you've got to look hard. You see, in verses 4 and 5, after Stephen speaks of God appearing to Abraham in Mesopotamia, it says, Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into the land which you are now living now, friends, I wish I had time to unpack this. In fact, I've got a lot of notes on it, but I'm going to skip it for now. When Stephen speaks of Terah's death, Terah being the father of Abraham, I don't think he's making as much an historical statement as he's making a theological one. Terah died outside of the promise. If it was God's revelation to Abraham when they were still at Ur that set them on this journey first to Haran. And so God reveals this promise to them. They, make, they, they depart Terah and the whole group with them and they make their way to Haran, but they stop at Haran. Terah dies at Haran and then they move on. Then that's evidence that he died outside of the promise. More than likely, as Joshua said in Joshua 24, verse 2, still in his idolatry. But yet God removed Abraham from there and brought him into this land. He delivered him from there and put him into this land, the land of promise. I mean, after all, Abraham is the father of many nations, not Terah. But yet, if you read through the genealogies in Genesis chapter 11, who does it start with? It starts with Terah. And I think that 
Terah started in keeping with the promise, but died outside of it. And that's right in line with everything else we see in Stephen's sermon. Because he moves next to the jealousy and betrayal of Joseph's brothers. God gives Joseph those two separate visions of the future in which his family all bows down to him and they want to kill him for it. Because let's face it, guys, this is what we tend to do when God's word says to submit ourselves to his established authority structure. We want to reject it and we want to kill the messenger. And so they betray him and they sell him into slavery. But they had no way of knowing that what they intended for evil, God had intended for good. That God delivered Joseph from all of his afflictions and through him saved the very people who had rejected him. Though they were of the same family line, though they had been living in God's chosen place, they rejected God's word, delivered to Joseph, and they delivered Joseph up to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God into the hands of lawless men. And yet, God raised him up, loosing all of his pangs, and through him, delivered this people, saved this people unto himself. In Stephen's retelling of Moses, we are reminded of the fact that if God had not raised up another Pharaoh, the Israelites would have remained in Egypt outside of the promise. And yet, even though the atrocities of exposing infants to death and all of that, God brought forth Moses from the water who he made a ruler and judge and redeemer and prophet. And by his leadership, they were saved. By his mediation, they received the living oracles of God. And yet, what did the people do? In verse 39, they, our fathers refused to obey him, and they thrust him aside, and in their hearts they turned to Egypt. In their hearts they turned to Egypt. That that way of life, that culture, those gods... That those entertainments, those pleasures were all better than what God had for them. And while Moses was on the mountain receiving the law, the people below were, verse 40, saying to Aaron, make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And so they made a calf in those days and they offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the work of their hands. Guys, we may not bow down to golden calves these days, but how many of us spend our lives rejoicing in the work of our hands? And so because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and they worshiped and served the created rather than the creator who is blessed forever, verse 42 says that God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven, as it is written in the book of prophets. In Amos chapter 5, Did you bring to me slain beasts and sacrifices during the forty years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your god Raphon, the images that you made to worship, and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. This pattern of turning away from God to idols that 
we make with our hands has been a pattern ever since Moses received the law. It was there the days of Amos and every one of the prophets. The same thing happening over and over again. Despite God's mercy, despite his covenant-keeping love, the heart of man, when left to itself, is a factory of idols. And even when God gives you something tangible, like a tabernacle or a temple, you turn that into an idol too. Unless we think, well, you know, that was then and this is now. In verse 51 through 53, Stephen brings it back home for us. And friends, notice here that he doesn't pull any punches. Okay? If we are going to speak as Christ, we don't pull the punches. Not because we're, we're mean and vindictive, but because conviction of sin is necessary for us to receive the grace of God. And so, he says to him, you stiff-necked people, you stubborn people, you can't even turn your heads to see. He goes on, that though you may have received that outward sign of circumcision, just as Moses had warned the second generation, both in Deuteronomy chapter 10 and again in Deuteronomy chapter 30, you are still uncircumcised in your hearts and in your ears. You have no ears to hear, no heart to receive. You have not been born again through faith in Jesus Christ. Rather, you always resist the Holy Spirit. You reject all of his appeals as your. Now notice that he says your now. He started out saying our fathers. Now he says your fathers did, so do you. You are just as guilty as they are. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as being delivered by angels and did not keep it. Now notice there that it says did not keep it. You know why I think he says that? He says you didn't keep it because you did not see the one to whom it points. You murdered the righteous one. You look to the temple and to customs rather than Christ. And so you accuse me of being against Moses and God, the temple and the law, but in truth, it is you who are against them. Now, friends, this is not just a warning for these religious leaders. You see, we too can profess a faith in some version of God. We can attend God's place religiously. We can perform all of the customs. On the outside, we can appear very law-abiding, very moral, very good, very religious. We can fill all of our heads with Scripture and still die outside of the promise. We can reject God's authoritative word and betray his chosen messengers. We can refuse to obey. We can thrust his servants aside. In our hearts, we can turn to Egypt. We can fashion gods in our own image. 
In idolatry, we can rejoice in the work of our hands. We can profess faith in Christ and still be stiff-necked, uncircumcised in heart, and always resisting the Holy Spirit. We can live in such a way as to betray and to murder the righteous one, our Lord Jesus Christ, all over again. We can say that we have received God's word but refuse to keep it. This is what Jesus and the apostles warned the religious of over and over and over and over and over again. Do not be white washed tombs who appear beautiful on the outside but on the inside harbor dead men's bones. So the thing we need to consider as we move forward is is there rebellion in your heart towards God? Are there there ways in which you find yourself pushing back, resisting the Holy Spirit? You may be here and you may be going through all of the motions, but in your heart you have turned to Egypt, to idols, to the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Now friends, in in some measure we, we all do. And this is where conviction of sin And the gift of repentance and faith in Jesus Christ are so important to us. This is where it is so essential that we, by God's grace, commit ourselves to walk in obedience to Christ and to devote ourselves to the very things that he calls us to devote ourselves to, to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayers. Because in these things there is life. We still have a part to play. We're not passive observers in the whole deal. We, too, are to seek, to live out, to know, to love, and to follow the whole counsel of God. And so here's how we can move away from being stiff-necked to walk in the Spirit of God. This is our part. God has to do His work, but this is our part. And again, this is from Jonathan Edwards, The Distinguishing Marks of the Spirit of God. We move away from being stiff-necked to walking in the Spirit by developing a growing, robust esteem for Christ as He has clearly been revealed in Scripture. And friends, though we have spent a lot of time on it this morning, I have barely scratched the surface. I could easily preach three hours on this text, and I wouldn't be scratching the surface. There is so much beauty and glory and depth when we understand how God has fulfilled the promises in Christ that we want to grow in our esteem for him by knowing him throughout the whole counsel of God. We walk by faith, by by fighting against the kingdom of Satan and against the encouragement and establishment of sin. We refuse, by God's grace, to turn to Egypt, to worship false gods, to reject God's revealed word in any way. Instead, we strive to cultivate a greater regard for Scripture. When we come to God's word, does it humble us? Does it delight us? Do we tremble at his word? 
Does it produce in us a growing conviction in truth that leads us away from error? And does it develop within us an ever-deepening love for God and for men? Friends, that can only happen and will happen when God prepares the way for stiff-necked people, third, to find salvation in Christ. Well, at this point, the high priest and the council have heard enough. They will not entertain this Hellenist Jew, nobody Jew any longer. How dare he speak to us this way? And so, enraged, they grind their teeth against him. And they grab him and they drag him out of the city and they stone him to death. But friends, I'm not convinced that Stephen's message was over. Now perhaps Luke ends it here because these are God's final words of indictment, of judgment against these religious leaders. This is the state of their soul. They are forever stiff-necked, refusing, resisting the Holy Spirit, They've killed the righteous one, and that's it for them. But I believe that if they were allowed, if they had allowed Stephen to continue to finish out his sermon, he would have come back around to Christ. He would have given them hope, just as Peter and the apostles had in chapter 4 and chapter 5. That they would have, he would have spoken of the forgiveness of sin and the gift of repentance and faith in Jesus' name. And so what Stephen didn't get to tell them, I'm now going to tell you. That this one eternal way that God has prepared from before the very foundation of the world for stiff-necked sinners like you and me is to find salvation in Jesus Christ. Jesus is the true offspring of Abraham through whom all of the families of the earth shall be blessed. Through him our hearts and our ears, not just our outward signs, but our hearts and ears might be circumcised into an abiding covenant relationship with God. Jesus is a better ruler and savior than Joseph. His forgiveness of those who rejected him is not merely earthly or through bloodlines, but is a forever union given by the power of the Holy Spirit that reconciles us to God for all eternity. Jesus is a better ruler, a better judge, a better lawgiver, a better redeemer, a better prophet than Moses Because he doesn't just mediate the law, but he himself is the living oracle of God, full of grace and power and glory and wisdom and authority and holiness and righteousness and truth. He is a better master and a better God than anything else that you can live for and rejoice in. They will only leave you dead in the wilderness outside of the promise, but he will give you eternal life in his name to live in the beauty and the glory of God. He is a better tabernacle and a better temple Because he is the word of God made flesh, who not only dwells among us, but within each and every one of us by faith in his name. Through him, there is forgiveness. Through him, there is life. 
Through him, there is glory and beauty and redemption and purpose and joy. In him, there is hope. Friends, that's not a story that Stephen nor I could tell you in five minutes. That's not a story that is encapsulated in a little drawing on a napkin that you can pass off to your friends. This is a story that we will celebrate for eternity. This is a story that God took thousands and thousands and thousands of years to tell of how God prepared a way for stiff-necked people to find salvation in Christ. May we see it and believe it and live it and proclaim the whole counsel of God through faith in his name. Let's pray. Dear Lord God, I thank you so much for your word. God, I pray that our hearts would be stirred as we marvel in your wisdom, in your purpose, in your glory as you have made it known to us more fully through this endeavor, through this labor, through this this millennia-long story of salvation in Jesus Christ. God, I pray that we would esteem Christ more fully in our hearts, that we would delight and love your word even more than ever before, that, that as we turn every page, we would appropriately and rightly and, and earnestly see Jesus and to marvel at him. God, I pray that it would lead us to turn away from the idols that we make with our own hands to truly taking delight in the one who fulfills all things. God, I just want us to see Christ, to behold him and his glory, and as we are, to be transformed into his image from one degree of glory to another. And this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Amen.